you're listening to the True Life Church podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, join us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from lead pastor Joshua Smith. Good morning, True Life Church. How are we doing there? Uh, I want to start off uh, by quickly recapping a few things from last week's uh, message. Easter, as well as last week, have been some uh, some formative lessons uh, for us, and because of that, um, we are gradually going to try some new things. Uh, and one of those things, uh, seasonally, or we'll see some of these stick. Uh, from more than that, some of the things that we talked about last week was really encouraging us as a body of believers to bring your own Bible every week. I know technology is great, but it's not the same. It's not the same. So I encourage you to bring your own Bibles, make notes or a notepad or, or a, a journal or something like that to bring and study and make notes because we are diving deep into the Word of God. And there's a lot there. We could read a chapter uh, probably every week for the rest of our lives and still not cover it all. Like, it's massive, all right? Uh, so there's no shortage of information um, that we can learn. So I want to encourage you to bring your own Bibles. Again, we read out of the ESV or English Standard Version. Uh, I want to, a couple of other things, I want to continue to invite you to be here when you're not serving. I know, like, Shannon right here, front row. She's on the front row this morning. Hi, Shannon. Um, she, she often is across the hall. She's one of the people who serve in the way that Lance was just talking about. So it's always refreshing to see those who are here when they're not serving. Sometimes we can even wrap our identity up and, well, that's what I'm meant to do. N- no, not first. Maybe not even second. Um, so come when you're not serving. Make missing the church. Make these bodies of Christ, our body of Christ, the gatherings, um, important. Um, and that's a choice. That's a choice we have to make. Um, and want to make it the exception, not the acceptation. In other words, I want us to accept the status quo of, well, I'll make some Sundays or I'll make most Sundays. Friends, it is important when we are here together, weekly, sharing in the word, sharing in the table, building up the body of Christ. And we can't, it's hard to edify the body of Christ if some of the body of Christ is missing. I'll just say that. So we encourage you to, to be here um, as, as, as often as you possibly can. Uh, come ready to worship. And we're starting off right out of the gates. Um, it's more than a feeling, right? It's not about how we feel that day. It's not about I like these songs or don't like these songs. Uh, our team is doing our best to sing biblical truth solid theological songs. Um, and so when we come, we sing worship, we're giving God the praise and the glory. So less me-centered worship, more he-centered worship, and we're coming in ready to praise. And so I hope you're looking forward to that. It's not how we feel that day. Uh, we may even be in the future soon experimenting with our order of worship. Um, we'll talk about that in, in a future weeks. We're not changing everything all at once. It's gradual. We talked about a lot of things last week, but this is one of the things that we are going to change, at least, again, for a season. The season could be infinite, but for right now, I want to invite you for this, 
to stand as we read the Word of God together. It's one of the things we talked about last week. The Word of God is holy. And so for our main scripture reading, I want to invite you to stand this morning. Listen to the words recorded. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through chapter 21, verse 17. It's a joke. There's not even that many chapters in Nehemiah. Just making sure you're paying attention. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses and all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word for us as we dive into this passage and others pray that you would reveal yourself and what we need to know today. That we would be able to store up this knowledge and the things that we learned deep within our hearts and that that would overflow into our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. To recap a little bit where we are in our series in Nehemiah, Uh, a few of the highlights we have discussed so far. Number one, you are sent. You are sent. Nehemiah was sent um, not by Artaxerxes. He was sent by the Lord. The Lord is the one who broke his heart. And then he went to King Artaxerxes of Persia and asked if he could be released and go help rebuild his homeland in Jerusalem and Judea. And you and I are sent. right? We are co missionaries, co-missioning, co-laboring with Christ for Christ. We are sent. You have a purpose in this life. You have a group that you are sent to. It might include your family, your friends, your co-workers, your school, your classmates. You might even be sent to the aisles of Walmart All right, as you go grocery shopping there. You are sent and have that mindset and all that we do. Secondly, we are meant to build. Right? We are not to meant to take what we have and bury it in the ground, be poor stewards of what God has entrusted with us. We are meant to invest, as in the parable of the talents, meant to build what God has given us. And God has kind of hardwired us, designed us as, as builders. We want to increase God's kingdom. You know? And this is a trap because we can, if we are not careful set ourselves to building our own kingdom. And that's not what we are called to do. We are meant to build. 
Also from Nehemiah, what is inspected should be improved. And so we have to take stock of what we have, assess our resources as any good leader does, and see what you have at your disposal. How many hours that you have in your week? I know it's the exact same number of hours that I have. How many hours are in your day? I guarantee you it's 24, all right? So after that, things start changing. What is your economic availability? What is your past? What is your talents that you can lend towards building God's kingdom, building your family? Also, building for the kingdom brings adversity. Like, it gets dark. You know, it's, things happen. Um, that's all right. You're good, Jeremy. Um, we'll get it back. It's all right. Hooray, backlit iPad. <laughs> Welcome to Century 21. <laughs> this is paper. <laughs> this is paper. Um, so we are going to have adversity when we build for God's kingdom, all right? Because the world is opposed to God's kingdom. And to be honest, God's kingdom is opposed and contrary to the world, all right? So it's not going to be easy. And so if we are looking for an easy faith, find another one. You're looking for an easy journey in this life. And you might not respond well to the words of Christ saying, pick up your cross, die to yourself, or for others even, and follow me. Also build what is in front of you. Nehemiah was standing in front of the wall. That wall was broke. So what did he do? Let's fix the wall. Which one? That one? No, no, no. This one. Like right here, right what's in front of me. You and I are, if we need a place to start, like Lance said earlier, if you're looking for a place, you don't have to look too far for an opportunity to serve. God has put things in front of you that are often just waiting for you to actually do what he's called you to do because you are sent. We like being lazy and comfortable and complacent. But you and I are called to build what's in front of you. What's in front of you? When we take stock of that, we realize what's in front of us is our family, our relationships. And so while I love that we partner with global missionaries, because we're talking about people who don't even have the word of God in their language, it's needed. It's not that global missions are not necessary. But you can be a missionary right here in Melbourne. No passport required. Build what's in front of you. A godly mission is also confusing to a worldly people. Again, these are contrary or opposing to each other, and they don't get it. And so we find ourselves in conversations, dialogue, and realistically arguments about the sanctity of life. Roe versus Wade and other things that the Supreme Court has within the last lifetime made into law. I challenge you, if you like internet, Google how many abortions were recorded before 1900, and then look at the last century and a half or so. A godly mission is confusing to a worldly people. And I cannot read this text and find anywhere where it does not appear that God would not be pro-life. God is for life. He created it, sustains it. In fact, Jesus said, I come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. 
So a godly mission is confusing to a lordly people. We are called to fight for our families, to find the gaps in our wall and build it. Find what is weak and improve it. And to do that, building requires faithfulness, requires consistency. New Year's resolutions are famous, or infamous even. And our gyms get crowded for about five weeks. And people's diets are lucky if they last that long. And we like hopping on a bandwagon as long as the trip is short. Fairweather fans of any sport. Building requires faithfulness and consistency. And the journey ahead for you and me in our faith following Christ has to be a daily one. We're talking about this this morning, in fact. We also have to ask ourselves the question, question, are we faithful with what God has already given us? Or are we misusing what is already at our disposal? Our time, our talents, our resources, our finances, our abilities, our relationships, our location. Are we misusing what God has already given us? And God looks at our hearts. 1 Samuel chapter 16. God looked at the heart of David before he was anointed to be king. And that comes out of here in the book of Nehemiah because we had talked about how the leaders or the leadership had twisted things and were taxing and taxing double and even forcing their own people to sell their sons and daughters into slavery to pay off the fields and taxes. And Nehemiah put a stop to that. So this is wrong. So God looks at our hearts and we talked about how we need to be fruitful, fruitful bearing and how we as a tree are grafted into the history of the people of Israel. Every financial decision is a spiritual decision. You honor what you look at. And finally, the call out of this book that we've been in that I almost want to slap on a t-shirt for us is this idea of build and fight. As the laborers were up on the wall, rebuilding the wall, and at any time could have been attacked by Sanballat and the other Ashdodites and other tribes and Samaritans. They had to be ready, and so they were building with one hand and ready to fight with the other. And I believe that that is the Christian call right now. To build in one hand and to be ready to fight and the other. It's no accident that later in Ephesians, Paul references in chapter 6 the armor of God. Why would he need to do that if there was not a battle before us? So we are protected by the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of truth, and on. But then we have the sword, which, if you recall, friends, is what? The word of God, sharper than any two edged sword able to pierce bone and marrow, get to the absolute core of ourselves and expose what's going on. And that's the word of God, and and you have it, hopefully, with you in your hands. You have the same access that I do. 
We should let it be changing our lives, our hearts, our way of thinking. In Romans, Paul also writes that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is a two-edged sword, because this can go the opposite way. You can be transformed by your mind being renewed by worldly things. This is not good. And this is a state that we find our nation in many, many hours of the day. Back and forth we go in what is popular and what is right and what is good. We are called to build and fight. So that's a quick recap of where we have been to lead us into where we're going today. Again, we've already read our main passage, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13 through 18, and I want to do a little bit of explaining on this before we look at some more scriptures to tie this together for us today. In verse 17, we see it's Jeshua, and the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that is also a same way of saying Joshua, son of Nun, um, and that's the Joshua that took over after Moses. Right? So we have the exodus of the Israelite people. This is just an alternate spelling. It's not a different dude. It's the same dude. Don't start calling me Jeshua, please. You know, that's not my name. Um, but that's where we, yeah, that's where the, the Yeshua um, for, for Jesus is also the exact same name in, in Hebrew. Um, we have an, an American, America. Uh, it's Jesus, but the, the root word is Yeshua, same, same word. Regardless, so if you're wondering, that's the Jeshua, is this the same dude that came after Moses? Yes, the same guy. And we read here that the, since his days to this day, the Feast of Booths had not been celebrated. Now, this Feast of Booths that we're talking about today is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This is used interchangeably. Uh, it comes around about every year and the first-ish week of October by our calendar. The Jewish calendar is different, um, and so they have a different New Year. They have different festivals and different days. But for us, I think coming up this year, I believe it's October 2nd through October 9th. Um, if just in case you're curious. And so it was this festival that they would celebrate. Um, usually the harvest had come in, and they would celebrate the overflow, the bounty of the harvest. And more importantly, they were called, uh, as they read in the book of law, and here we're reading this morning, that they were called to build booths. Uh, in other words, tiny little temporary structures with sticks and palm branches and olive leaves and all that kind of stuff, and they would build this structure, and they were meant to live inside of this hastily, and if we're honest, perhaps even shoddily built structure for a week. Um, It was not large. So if you can imagine going camping with your family, and let's say you're a family of four, so foolishly you buy the four-person tent Anyone who's ever been camping knows that they, like, must use four-year-old children as the mock-up of how the the sleeping bags could possibly be arranged. The four-person tent does not sleep four. If you're lucky, the four-person sleeps two, you know? So imagine you're a family of four in a four-person tent for a week, because let's say your construction abilities are subpar, and you just don't have the the knowledge or know-how to be able to put a structure that you would trust your family surviving in. 
for a week. But that's what they do. And so they build these little structures, as we talked about, on the roofs and in the courtyards, on the streets. There weren't homes yet rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. So for them, think about it this way. The Feast of Booths and their tiny little tabernacles was an upgrade because there, there wasn't anything there. And so they build this to remind them of what God has done for them in the wilderness. All right? So when, after and we, we have the Exodus and the Israelites come out of Egypt and they come and they wander in the desert for 40 years. And this feast, this Feast of Booths, is meant to celebrate the harvest and the provision that God did for the people of Israel through things like manna from heaven, um, the endless flocks of quail, uh, the water coming from the rock, and so forth. So um, this is a great time that they would come together and they would remember. But what we read is that from the days of Jeshua, Joshua, till this day, it had not been kept. And what they mean by that is you can find a couple of places, like Zerubbabel and a couple of other places, where there's recording that they had these, they, they did in fact celebrate this festival of booths. What they mean most likely, even if they weren't regular occurrences, is that until this time, nothing had been done for the Feast of Booths like this. They hadn't kept the law this rigorously. Because for much of this time, the Israelites had been in captivity, and they were subservient to other people's laws so they could or could not do things. So they, were, they kind of adjusted their perception of what they should or could do for this Feast of Booths, and not held to the law as in the book here. Now, even to this day, I know this is fascinating, but even to this day, uh, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And in a similar way that we read here, Jeshua the son of Nun, the people had not kept so, we find even today that all that's required, a minimum basic requirement to be Jewish and celebrate the Festival of Booths today is that you must have at least one meal inside your shelter. That's it. They don't have to live, it, live in it anymore. In fact, rather than being simplistic, as is described here, most of the booths, I tell you, like, get on the Google machine and look this up. Some of these things are, like, fancy. Like, there's, it's beyond glamping. Like, there's, there's sheets, there's decorations, there's plates hanging on the wall, there's AC. Um, I mean, it's a really, there's comfortable places to sit, and there's a long table for the people to eat at. Like, no beds or anything, because no one sleeps in it anymore, because that's not required for them. So they've reduced the bare minimum covenant down to just, well, if you can make just one meal a day in the booth that you've made, you're good. In a similar way, that's why we're changing some things for us here in our house because we have reduced the bare minimum Christ following requirements down to come to church sometimes have a bible that collects dust on a bookshelf post something every once in a while that makes people feel good in a nice meme on facebook and don't discourage anyone about their own faith or practices friends that's not anywhere in here and nor is it the life that we have been called to live. And so rather than reducing the Christ-following walk here at True Life Church down to the bare minimum requirements, we are instead upping the bar here for us. And so the last couple of messages aren't out of a place of disappointment or frustration. Rather, hopefully they're out of encouragement and challenge that we will step up and raise the bar for ourselves here and for yourselves in your homes about how we pursue God.
Does that make sense? All right. I don't know if you are a fan of PC games, uh, computer games. I used to be back when I had a computer that would run them. And what I found was, over time, technology advanced. And though I love games like Command and Conquer and other little things where you take tiny little armies and you build them up and you go... Anyone ever play Command and Conquer? Uh, anyone with me? There's three of us, four of us. Thank you. Okay, I'm dating myself for sure. Five, okay. Command and Conquer Generals was the best, bar none. No hands down. Preaching this. Gospel's coming out. Gospel truth. Anyway, and, and my computer stayed the same, right? But the games that continued to come out, then later like Rome, Total War, and other things like that, the armies got larger, and the, the requirements to run this program became higher. And I did not upgrade my computer and wanted to play some of the same games. What do you think happened? And it took forever to load, which is very complicated, right? So that's what it looks like to run a computer program on your bare operating requirements. It's not good, right? And so for us, let's think about it in the same terminology. We're going to upgrade... Not the software, but the hardware. The program was fine. We, we got to replace the hard drive and some processing units on the inside to be able to run the program as God has called us to. So we're upgrading. We are raising the bar. We don't want to be the bare, basic, minimum requirements. In verse 17 here of Still chapter 8, we read in this exact way we just left. And there was great rejoicing. In fact, very great rejoicing. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I went away into this four-person tent with my family for a week, <sighs> I'm not sure we call it rejoicing. It would be like pulling your hair out, very stressful situations, right? It would be uh, worrying that, you know, did the kids have enough to eat, or then the little one didn't like peanut butter and jelly, or you left someone's shoes, a sleeping bag, or whatever it is. It, something got left behind, and it would be hard to be rejoicing when you're that close together. But this is, in fact, what happened. And there was not great rejoicing. There was very great rejoicing as they came together, and then the overflow of rejoicing is out of the remembrance for what God has done for them. So they're not rejoicing because of what they have done. They are rejoicing because of what he has done. And any time we come together and we remember what God has done for us, it should move our hearts towards two places, repentance and rejoicing. When we remember, it moves us towards repentance and rejoicing. Friends, too often today we just go about our daily lives and do not remember we get caught up in our own world, our own activities, our own to-do lists, and we have stopped pausing and, and, and having a micro-feast of booths. Set up a tiny place. And this tiny feast of booths might be your 20-minute lunch break in the break room. If you even have a break room, it might be at your desk where you put on headphones and you can just clock out for a minute. This tiny little feast of booths you might need for daily remembrance and coming together, it might be in your car before you go into work and start your day off the right way by opening the Word of God. And so we read about this here in verse 18. We're going to come back here, so keep your finger here. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, this seven-day feast, 
So seven days. He, meaning Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. Now if you recall last week, what that reading from the book of the law looked like was what? It was a six plus hour sermon as the people stood for all of it, listened for all of it, and the, the priests and the Levites and the leaders were out and amongst the people teaching to make sure that everybody understood. Now, they had done that the first day, but here we read that they did it again the next day and the next and the next and the next and the next, every day of this feast. If you came next week and I preached today's message again, would you come? Two weeks from now, would you come? Three weeks from now, would you come? Most likely we would see our attendance start to dwindle off and our hearts and minds say, well, I don't really have to watch the live stream today or I know what he's going to say, I've heard this before. Because you would have. Yet we, he, we see the people here attentive and listening to the word again and again and again. And so what we are led to believe here from the text is that they gathered again in every morning and they read all of the book of the law again. Followed by repentance and rejoicing. And the next day they gather and repent and rejoice. And the next day they gather and after long hours of reading, again, exciting books like Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, hooray! And there was much rejoicing. In fact, there was. There was very great rejoicing. So they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I invite you to keep your fingers there as we now turn over to the book of John. The book of John, chapter 7, is where we're going to go. And this is Jesus now, fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years later. Jesus is present walking around the city of Jerusalem amongst the very walls that Nehemiah helped rebuild. There they are. And here we see Jesus during this same festival of booths, festival of tabernacles, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, is this Jesus, is this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now pause here really quickly. Is that true? based on our understanding of Old Testament texts, would, really, would no one really know where the Messiah was to come from? We talked about this a lot at Christmas, so I'm not going to go back and preach that message right now, but there are many prophecies and foretellings in Isaiah, among others, that say we know exactly where this person, this Messiah, will come from. We've got the city, Bethlehem Ephrathah, right? And we've got the, the, the history and the lineage from the root of Jesse's tree, right? We, we know where this person is coming from and where they're going to be. And so what this shows is a cultural acceptance of incorrect readings of the text, right? I know it's riveting, right? But let's, let's think about where we are at today, friends. We are plagued as Christians in Christianity by a cultural acceptance or appropriation of misreading the text. 
And so we find ourselves embroiled in battles and legalism and tribalism and, and LGBTQism and a whole bunch of different things that if someone simply just opened the Word of God, they would be able to see it for themselves. We find ourselves as people being led and misled to pick and choose a verse they like, discard verses they don't. Say, this must apply to me, not that so much. And friends, either this is true, all of it, or none of it. And it is true and good and excellent and praiseworthy. And, and we are able to learn from this. What this requires then is that we have to submit ourselves in obedience to this text, to the Word of God. Whether we like it or not. Now, if these people had read the text, they would have known and studied, they would have known where Jesus, when the prophesied Messiah, was to come. They were culturally religious, but they did not know what the text said. I was listening to a podcast this past week. I've actually listened to it multiple times now. Um, And it's a man, a pastor, one of the pastors at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, His name is Glenn Packiam, and he's being interviewed by a a former pastor and leader called Kerry Newhoff in Canada, eh? Now, admittedly, I'm not a fan of Kerry Newhoff, um, but I find sometimes the guest he interviews uh, intriguing or encouraging. And this is one such thing. I'm not sure Kerry Newhoff was quite ready for some of the, the knowledge bombs that were dropped during this podcast. Uh, if you want, if you're in, curious to listen to this, this episode number 492. Um, so what, uh, the way that Glenn Packian put it, and I found myself thinking about this so much this week, I want to encourage you with this word from another, from another pastor, is that if you look at our planet Earth, we have tectonic plates shifting, right, all the time, slowly, and every once in a while, one of those will buckle and cause an earthquake, Right, So geology 101 type of thing. And in 2004, it caused a massive tsunami that, that swept. It was the Boxing Day tsunami, if you recall that, on Malaysia and Indonesia and all of that. And just whoosh, massive, massive destruction. And one of the things that he proposes here is that the tectonic plates of Christianity in the world in the West, so Europe and America, weren't at war with each other as much 100 years ago, 50 years ago. 200 years ago. In fact, in many ways, they probably agreed. But now as our culture shifts, we're having these bucklings of tectonic plates in, our, in the way we, we see the world, either a Christ-following worldview or a world-following worldview. And so we are now at war. These, these, we're having earthquakes kind of erupt through Facebook and erupt through Twitter and erupt through the media and erupt through politics and erupt through um, Supreme Court decisions. We're having earthquakes just ripple and ripple and everyone is caught kind of in the destructive wave of these tsunamis. And he proposes that there are three major results of these, these wave of these seismic plates shifting in our nation today. Uh, one is pluralism. 
And I, I want to share this with you because this is important for us, and we're going to come back around to this at the end. Pluralism. And, and what does mean? What is pluralism? Well, well, pluralism today is where people kind of appropriate different things from different religions, different concepts, different ideas. They like maybe the redemption part of Christianity, but they like Zen from Buddhism, or they like Nirvana um, over there. And so they like, they're picking and choosing, well, this is what I think heaven might be like, or this is, I really like uh, yoga and all these other practices, and this is maybe healthier. So we're, we're appropriating all of these different kinds of things that are not biblical into the way we see and operate in our world. And so we're picking and choosing, and you might know people who do this. All right? uh, he references a, a man who, uh, uh, no, I believe it was a Nobel Prize winning author, and he stood up there and he introduced himself as a Catholic Buddhist. What is, what is that? And this is, if we're not careful, we will fall into this trap because our world is already operating this way. They like this from Christianity. They like just maybe being a good person. They like, you know, some of the Ten Commandments. It's nice to not murder. We'll take that one. Cheating on others, spouses, adultery. That's bad. We'll take that one. Honoring the Lord your God. Mm, ah. Keep the Sabbath holy. So that we're, we're appropriating different things from different religions. And that leads us into kind of this, this next thing. The, uh, that the, wor- the world, uh, I believe Glenn Packiam said, I didn't put this exactly phrase down in my notes, but he says it's the, the danger we're in right now is not the, the tolerance of other religions, it's this synchronicity of other religions. In other words, everything kind of amalgamizing, just coming together to be one general blob of faith. And bumper stickers that say, coexist. And we're going to come to a scripture that stands in contrast to that bumper sticker. And if, that, if you have that on your car, I challenge you to go out this morning and, and rip it off. The second thing Glenn Packiam said is not pluralism, but now paganism. Paganism. And we don't like to think in, in 2021 that we are worshiping other gods. But what paganism really is, is earthbound gods that help you meet your earthly needs. So if they wanted a victory, they would go put this shrine at the you know, god of war and victory. And if they wanted a baby, they would go to the god or goddess of fertility and they would make an offering to that god. If they wanted need to be made well, they would go to this god or goddess and they'd, they would put a little shrine and offering in there. Like, well, we don't do that. There's not tiny little stone sculptures right now. I challenge you, if you need information, do, you go, do not go and visit the shrine of technology. I mean, if, 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 if we're honest with ourselves, there's the shrine of politics. There's, there's the shrine of economics. There's the shrine of medicine. If you need to be well, that's where we go first. I simply just need a new doctor, new prescription. And what we find ourselves is going to these shrines before going here. And this is a problem. Some of these people say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but you know what, I, I live in the real world, bro. All right? live in the real world. Instead of an obedience and a dependence on God. My dad died of pancreatic cancer in 2016. 
And I found myself reflecting on that uh, because it's my dad. You know, it's it's never going to leave. It's never going to go away. You know, it, it is what it is. And I, I came to a conclusion, you know, this past week that if I ever get cancer myself, um, I'm not going to a doctor first or praying first. And I'm going to pray so hard that I don't need a doctor. That's what I'm going to be praying for. I don't think God will heal me. Now that sounds crazy, maybe, to some. To some. But what good is our faith if we do not use it? And our God can heal and is mighty. And yes, can use doctors and other things. But friends, we do not need to go there first. You want to grow in leadership and wisdom and knowledge. Don't go to a conference or a seminar or visit Google because everything on the internet is true anyway, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be added. So we run the risk of these days of pluralism, paganism, and finally individualism. It says, right now we are constructing our own versions of self. Me. And I'm going to live my life this way and I'm going to make myself this way or say that I am this way or that way. And what we do is we make ourselves the best version. It's my way or the highway. I've built myself into this is my mindset. These are my pronouns. This is my lifestyle choice. And so not only is that the best way, but also you need to affirm that for me. This is not right. And this is not a godly way of living. So here again we have Jesus in the festival of booths. And we have misled people who did not know the text. They were culturally religious as the people we've just described. And then Jesus goes on here in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, and this was the great day because on that day what they had done by this point is that they had added to the things that we read earlier in Nehemiah and then in Exodus to the law of the, how they were supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths. They added a, an, a water offering in remembrance of how God provided for them again in the desert. So there's this water offering on this last day of the feast, this biggest day, and that's the day that we're talking about. And on this day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is not a coincidence that Jesus stood up on the day of the water offering on the festival of booths and then say, hey, if you're thirsty, you want real water? I'm here. You want to really survive? You want to really thrive? You want to really have life abundantly? Get this water. You're not going to thirst again. Come and drink. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given, Jesus is still present, Holy Spirit not received yet the day of Pentecost, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that glorification is his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. So Jesus is crying out on this last day of the feast on Hoshana Rabbah, you want water? Come to me and drink. See, Jesus is the answer to our thirsting in a worldly desert. So if you and I are thirsty today, where do we go? Do we go to a feeling? Do we go to a location? Jesus prefers to meet me at five, guys. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's something holy about those burgers and expensive. No, we don't, we don't go to a place. We don't, we don't remember a feeling. We don't eat a specific food. If we are thirsty, and we are today, hopefully you as I are thirsty, where do we go? We go here. And so Jesus is crying out even for us today in our wilderness of this world, saying, hey, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And our world is dry because the Christians have all dried up. Not all of them. There are some. In fact, there are many. But there are not as many as were. And in the coming days, that number will probably decrease rather than increase as the road ahead gets harder to follow in our faith. So we return to the word when we're thirsty. When you need something, when you need an answer, friends, go to the word of God. That's why I'm encouraging you to bring your Bibles every week. And beyond that, let's go here to the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. James chapter 1, verse 19. You go to Revelation and back about 15 pages, you'll find James. And he writes here, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Doesn't our world need that today? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, here in verse 21, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word. Psalm 119 verses 1 through 16 says this. And just you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read. It's not long. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your feeling. No, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. The implanted word I have stored up in my heart. That I might not sin against you. 
Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate. I'm going to think on your precepts, on these rules, on these laws, on the word, and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The implanted word is so important for us today. It's another reason, again, we're encouraging you to bring your Bibles, and beyond that, read them at home. I have the privilege of counseling Many people, single couples or whatever, and they're going through is they need help, and for some reason they turn to me. So I have the privilege and an opportunity to try to help them out according to God's Word. And some of the practical advice I have given in the last week, do you know what it is? Read the Bible daily. Read the Bible daily. And we can find so many excuses and reasons to not to. That's not what we're called to do. Store up the implanted word in our hearts. There may come a day where that is put in question or to the test. A book I've been reading lately is called Fox's Book of Martyrs. You want a tearjerker and one that you can only stomach a few pages at at a time. I read this with the worship team on Wednesday. I'm going to read this with you also. This is not rated G. In 1532, Thomas Harding and his wife, a husband and wife team, were accused of heresy because they denied that the bread and wine turned into the actual body and blood of Christ when the priest prayed over them in the Mass. And for this offense, the Bishop of Lincoln in eastern England condemned them to be burned alive at the stake. They were taken to Chesham in the Pell near Botley and chained to a stake. Bundles of wood were piled around them and set on fire. And as the fire rose up, one of the enraged papist spectators struck Thomas in the head with a thick piece of firewood so savagely that his head split open and his brains fell out into the fire. The priests who attended the burning told the people that if they brought more firewood to burn heretics, they would be given indulgences that would allow them to sin freely for 40 days. Wow. That's one story. This, that's, this entire book is full of people who took a stand in their faith. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. So if they're in there, they're dead. Well, you and I ultimately pass from this earth too. I would much rather take a stand on the gospel than lay down and be mowed over by culture. History is not the judge. God is. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, he goes on in verse 22. Deceiving yourselves, lying to yourselves, that I can read it and don't have to do it. Modern Christianity loves this. I just read it, I feel good, I don't have to do anything. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and then you forget what you look like. Depends on the filter that was put on it, I guess, in Snapchat. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, because this is hard, 
It's hard to follow the word of God and put it into action. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and watch this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained from the world. Remember that coexist bumper sticker? We're not called to be stained with the world. We're called to be set apart. Living in it, yes. But unstained by it. And not letting anything but this affect how we look at the world. Too often today, it's like we're, we're get, we get caught looking. I have my worldview. I have how I live my life. The education that I have. The background I have. The job I have. The place I live. The friends I have. The place I work. All that kind of stuff. And let me, let me look at the word of God through all of these different lenses. Let me, put, let me run it through the filter to see how all of these things can, can have this going around it. Instead of putting this at the center and looking at our job, at our families, at our relationships, at how we use or do not use social media, at how we interact with other people um, in the workplace, in the real world, and say, I'm going to base my worldview based on what this says and then operate based off of what this says instead of letting culture stain me, instead of letting the world or politics or fill in the blank stain me and then Cause me to look at this differently. Rather than starting here and letting me look at the world differently. Does this make sense? So be doers of the word, not hearers only. And stay unstained from the world. Finally, I want to go back to Nehemiah because I want to encourage you to underline this verse as we close. All the assembly in verse 17 of those who had returned from the captivity made booths. And they lived in booths. From, from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel, Israel, had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And here's what I want to encourage you to underline. And look at these next three words. What do they say? And, say that with me. Because it's not going to be up on the screen. So we have to turn there. It's Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 18. And, next word. Day by day. Day by day. Say that with me. Day by day. Say it with me again. Day by day. Say it with me again. Day by day. And day by day, from the first day to the last, they read from the book of the law of God. Friends, this is where I want to leave you as a challenge for this next week. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from other friends, followers, Christ followers, church people, people who work at churches and ministries, and we have conversation and say, how much do you read the Word of God? Oh, once a week. Maybe every couple of days. Or when I had to prepare a devotional or Bible study, I'll pick it up for that. These are, these are some people who are working in ministry at churches. It's scary. Day by day, my challenge for all of us this next week, day by day, read the Word 
of God for yourself and for your homes. Find an, a time, not an excuse, but find a time to come around together with your family and open the word of God together. There's a few families in our church who are doing this with their families. And do you know what they tell me? Their lives are being transformed. Their kids night and day difference. They're coming around reading a few verses together. Day by day, read the word of God. There's a fire, and I hope it's burning in you. Go in peace. Amen.